Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a new book from Faith Matters Publishing. It's called Restoration by Patrick Mason. Um, When we started the Faith Matters Publishing Project, one of our goals was to explore what restoration really means as the church moves into its third century, and that's exactly what Patrick does. If you're like me and you've ever wondered how restoring Israel can be relevant to you, you've got to read this book. Patrick shows how, as members of the church, it's our mission to truly lead out in bringing wholeness and healing to the marginalized and the vulnerable. This book absolutely lit a fire for me, and it has totally changed the way I view my own engagement with the church and with the world. I really can't recommend this book strongly enough. It's the kind of book you want everyone you know to be reading too, so that you can talk about it. So you can pick up a copy for yourself or for your friends and family at Desert Book, um, Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. Okay, that's it on the book for now, but we'll be sharing a lot more in the near future. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hi everybody, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. In this episode, we spoke with Jane Clayson Johnson about a really tough and important topic. Jane is an award-winning journalist widely known for her work on CBS News, ABC News, and on the nationally syndicated NPR program On Point. At CBS News, Jane was co-anchor of The Early Show, a regular correspondent for 48 hours, and an investigative reporter for Ion America segments for the CBS Evening News. We spoke with Jane about her 2018 book, Silent Souls Weeping, an incredibly important book that addresses depression specifically within a Latter-day Saint context. In our discussion, Jane shared her own moving story about her struggle with depression, along with insights about how depression relates to missionaries and missionary work, a culture of perfectionism, social media usage, suicidality, and the stigma that still remains around mental health issues. We're so grateful to Jane for coming on and for her vulnerability and openness. If you or anyone you know struggles with depression, we invite you to listen to Jane's message of hope, survival, and resilience. Okay, Jane Clayson Johnson, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's nice to be with you, Tim and Aubrey. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. We, um, we thought that, I mean, we, we're just so excited to have you on because we feel like the, the discussion that we're going to have that, around depression and the book that you've written are so um, important. It's, uh, it's something that has affected both of us personally in our in our families and with our with our loved ones and we also thought that this is a really timely discussion because as you point out in the book several times the the fact is that isolation it sounds like can really um, can really affect and aggravate symptoms of depression and obviously for the past few months there has been perhaps increased isolation in almost everyone's life due to the due to the pandemic and so we thought you know, this is something that is probably affecting a lot of people really heavily and we wanted to have that we wanted to have that discussion and um i i was really touched at the very very beginning of the book on the dedication page you said you what you wrote was just so my children will under will so my children will understand and that really uh yeah that that really moved me and you and then you open up with a really personal story about your experience with uh with depression and i wonder if you wouldn't mind as we get started just maybe sharing some of some of your story Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I will say I'm grateful for your willingness to talk about this and to tackle this important subject, especially, you know, during this time when a lot of people feel alone and lonely and isolated. And I think mental health issues have really come to the fore for a lot of people, um, even more so now. So thank you. Um, So, yes, I started my book with a very... um, (laughs) with just with it all out there. I mean, I wanted people to know that I get it and I understand and appreciate um, how devastating depression can be uh, because when it impacted me and when it affected me, it was, it came as a surprise, you know? I mean, I'd been through what I call situational sadness, you know, just the ups and downs of life, but nothing that I couldn't get out of and nothing that a good cry or two or three, you know, couldn't lift me out. and. Um, But depression was different and it just felt um, so heavy and dark and um, it it felt like someone had had 
um, put me in a, a, a burlap sack and tied the top and thrown me in a, you know, a, a deep hole and I couldn't figure out where I was and I couldn't get out and I and the harder I tried and the more I struggled the worse it got because I felt so guilty for having these feelings because I had a life that I'd you know sort of always planned on and hoped for and wanted and yet I was experiencing a clinical depression unlike anything I have experienced I had experienced before or have experienced since and so um, you know, in the midst of it, I um, started to feel like I shouldn't be here anymore, and that my husband deserved so much more than this, and that my children needed a different, better mother than me, because I can't possibly provide for them and serve them and love them in the way that I should be able to, because I'm, I'm just in such a dark terrible place and I started you know planning in my head my funeral and you know the flower arrangements in the chapel and who would attend and the musical numbers and you know as as ridiculous as it sounds to me now at the time it was perfectly reasonable and rational and you know I just wanted to fall asleep and fade away and so I tell that story um because I know many, many people <laughs> have been through it and are going through it. And I just want people to know um, that there is hope and that you can, you can climb out and you can find peace and you can find happiness once again. Well, thank you. I, so you, you decide to write this book after this experience that you had and, and you do all these interviews. I think you say 150 teens and men and women who are members of the church. And I love that you talk about at the beginning that the, that the symptoms really look different for everyone. I, I think a lot of people may think of depression just as this deep sadness. And um, I, I think there was somewhere, I don't remember, it was a friend that you quoted who said that depression is a ball and chain and some people drag it and some people swing it. Right. And, and I, thought, I thought that was so helpful to know. Maybe would you talk about how symptoms look for, for different people? Yes, thank you. So. Um... Maybe I'll just back up and say that I'm a journalist by trade and I you know, worked um, at two networks at ABC and CBS and now I fill in on a nationally syndicated um, NPR program. Um, and I wanted to sort of understand people's experiences with depression. And so when I called up Deseret Book and asked them if I could write a book about depression or would they be interested, you know, there was kind of a silence on the other end of the line for a few seconds. And then they said, sure, you know, let's, let's see. And to that point, you know, we hadn't really had anything like that before. And so I put my journalism skills to work and I, I spent three years interviewing more than 150 people. Um, as you say, men, women, teenagers, children, all members of the church, all who struggle with depression. And I, and I interviewed them you know, many I, I had never met before, most I had never met before. And I did it as sort of a journalistic exercise where I would start with one person and then that person would say, you know, you should talk to this and such. And by the end of it, I had this massive tree, this massive spreadsheet of people, um, one who led me to the next. And I categorized the interviews by topic. And so, you know, there's a chapter on kids and teens who suffer, what that looks like. There's a chapter on missionaries who come home early, what that is like, what that experience is like. Postpartum depression, new moms, what that feels like. Suicide, you know, what, what it feels like for those who have lost someone and for those who tried to commit suicide but didn't, were not successful and now have moved on and now look back. And so, so, so to your question about what it, what it looks like and what it is for different people. I chronicled and um, categorized people's experiences. I'm not a, an MD or a PhD, but for different people, I think I would say that some people feel dark and sad. Other people feel um, totally alone. Other people are very functioning. <laughs> people can go to work and they can go to school 
and they can come home and collapse and they can, um, you know, kind of settle into bed for, you know, 12 hours and then get back up and kind of pull, their, pull themselves together and try to do it again. So I think for everybody, the, the, um, the experience is different, the symptoms are different, and Aubrey, the treatment is different, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't pigeonhole one person into a set of medication or to a set of um, therapy skills. You know, what works for one doesn't work for another. And so I was very open about that in my book and tried to give a lot of different perspectives, not only about the experience of what people um, went through, but also how they tried to get out of it and wor what worked for them. Because what, again, what works for one doesn't work for another. So right. if there is such a variety of, um, of symptoms and ways that this uh, can apply to different people, is there still a bright line between what you would call situational sadness and, and depression? And at what point does it become depression? Well, I think when you cannot um, function, and I think for me, in my situation, you know, when you're starting to have suicidal ideation and you're starting to feel like, you know, you'd rather not be around, um, you know, <laughs> that's a real problem. And, and in my circumstance, I didn't share my experience with anyone. I didn't, I didn't tell friends. I didn't, you know, tell, you know, girlfriends at church. I didn't tell my Relief Society ministering. So, you know, I, I mean, I barely revealed the deepest and darkest feelings to my husband until one day, as I say in the book, you know, I just, I just kind of came to the breaking point and I, and I drove off on a Sunday afternoon and I really felt like that was going to be it. And I tell the story in the book about how, you know, I was sitting in my car and crying my eyes out and what am I going to do? And this, this is it. And, um, and a stranger, you know, came up to my window and knocked on my window and could clearly see I was in distress and, and asked, you know, is there someone you can call? And, you know, that was the moment where I did call my husband and I, you know, he'd been trying to get a hold of me and I finally called him and he took over and he, he took me to two doctors and, you know, sort of the process of healing began. Um, so I think, you know, again, some people are very good at hiding yeah. it and situational sadness can turn into depression on the turn of a dime. You know, it can happen very quickly mm. or it can happen over a long period of time. So again, everything, everyone is different. Every situation is different. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I felt like one of the most important messages of your book is this idea that depression can really change your ability to feel the spirit. In fact, I, it was in Relief Society where I heard your, about your book for the first time. And, and it was a discussion about this, this fact that if you are depressed, you may not be able to feel the spirit. And, and um, I, I, I wonder if you would share the metaphor of the circuit breaker, because I feel like that really worked for me. It, it, it was a way to reconcile this idea that we can believe in the promise of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost and be really honest about the fact that we can't feel anything. When yeah. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so a wonderful woman, uh, Louise Jorgensen, gave me this um, metaphor. She's a PhD clinician. Um, and she said to me, having depression is like, um, it's like the circuit breakers in your brain have turned off. And she likened it to the circuit breakers in your house. You know, if you... Um, if the lights go out and you are trying to figure out how to turn them back on, sometimes, you know, you go to the circuit breaker and it's a circuit breaker issue, right? I mean, it's not that the, that the energy or the power has stopped coming into the house. It's not like God has turned off his love or his, has stopped trying to get through to you or has stopped mm -hmm. extending his spirit. It's just that the circuit breakers are, are down and the same thing sort of happens in our brain. That was her analogy. And I think sometimes in the church, as members of the church, you know, this, this was a, a common theme, you know, that ran through every conversation, really, that, you know, I'm depressed, I can't feel the spirit, it must be my fault. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think as members of the church, we face struggles that are unique to us in this area because we're trying to fit a disease manifest through sorrow 
into a religion centered on a plan of happiness, right? And you read yeah. in the scriptures, if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness, right? It, we, we learn in Mosiah that the blessed and happy state of those to keep the commandments, right? So, yeah. you know, the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace. And so when I was a kid, it was confusing because I had been taught and, you know, I read in the scriptures that if you're doing what's right and you're following the commandments and you're living by the spirit, then you're happy, right? Yeah. And if you're dark or sad or not social or whatever, then you must be doing something wrong in your life and you need to repent. And so this was a huge, huge theme that I, that I um, explore in the book. And I discovered so many people who, like me, bring that burden back onto themselves because they don't feel the spirit and because they don't feel the spirit because they're in a clinical depression because the circuit breakers are haywire in their brain they feel unworthy and so they say okay i've got to pray more or i've just got to serve more or i've got to go to the temple more and if i do that then the depression will go away right to which many clinicians and mds said to me you know would you sit in a corner and pray your heart disease away no, you would not do that. You would pray and you would go to the cardiologist, right? So the right. same principle applies to depression. I love that. I, and I, I loved in that chapter that you, um, I think it was Sue Clark in that interview where she says that whenever she has the thought, I'm a bad person, then she knows that she needs to reach out for help because that's what depression says to her. Yes, I love Sue Clark. Sue Clark was our neighbor in Boston for many years. And then, of course, they went on to their tremendous service at BYU-Idaho. And President Clark is the commissioner of church education. And the reason I love Sue's story and her openness is because she struggled for so many years through seven children and, you know, very serious bouts of depression, which she talked about in, in you know, as I interviewed her for my book. But she's, she knows now what to do, and she's not afraid to do it, and she's not afraid to talk about it. I, I love the story that she told me in her book about the first family home evening meeting that she had with President Clark in the president's home. The first, the first week, remember this story? The first week when she was, they were, you know, presidents of the university, and a young woman raised her hand and said, isn't it true that if I'm more righteous and if I pray more, that my depression will go away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here's here's Sister Clark, you know, brand new and and you know, hadn't really decided, you know, kind of what, but but she was willing to step up and say, let me tell you what has happened to me. And that's really such an important part of my book and kind of the message I always want to share is the more that we're willing to open up as people who have struggled, as as people who are who understand what is what um, you know the experience of depression, the more we're willing to share and open up, especially about how depression impacts the ability to feel the spirit. I think yeah. the more we're going to help people and save people and save testimonies, right? Save people's testimonies. Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. That um, that idea of sharing as an antidote, I think, makes sense because isolation is such a is such a strong theme throughout the book and marginalization how those things can lead to um lead to aggravated depression and it seems like th that can happen obviously within our communities and our families but also like you're describing when you feel like you can no longer feel the spirit that could be described as an isolation from god and so it's it's almost as if uh, everything that you knew and loved is has become separate from you is that is that an accurate way to describe how one might feel Yes, you know, I think um, it's, it's a good question. I think every person that I interviewed for this book, Tim, every person said that talking about their depression not only helped them, but it helped those around them. And mm. I, can, I can bear testimony to that too. When you talk about your experience and when you talk about your depression, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that you should walk around, you know, with a big flag on your arm, you know, talking, you know, a big sign on your sleeve. I have depression, you know, come, let me, you know, let me unload. I'm talking about, you know, judiciously and sort of carefully um, kind of finding opportunities um, to share and to open up. 
and to share your experience with someone else because it not only helps you, but it helps them. You know, I, before the pandemic and, you know, since my book came out, I would go around the country in different speaking engagements and at every engagement, whether it was 100 people or 5,000 people, I would ask the people in the room to stand up if they or someone that they know and love suffers with depression. And mm. without fail, without fail at every event, 98% of the room stands up. Wow. Everyone has a story and everyone knows someone who has a story. Um, and so, you know, you think you're the only one, you are not the only one. Yeah. This is reminding me of the, the story about the two sisters who, I can't remember the details specifically, but the one sister was diagnosed with some form of, of very serious cancer and the other had a, was in the middle of a, of a deep clinical depression. And, and the sister that you talked to who was depressed said, I, I wish I could trade places with her because then it would be this honorable fight. And, you know, the ward was rallying around her and bringing meals and taking care of her children. And, and she felt like there was this shame associated with the depression that made her unable to talk about it. And I think that's just such an important point that this, this really is a disease. It's not a, like you say, not a spiritual deficit. And we should rally around people in the same way that we would for any other sickness. And I love that you call it um, your like brain health because it kind of, it shows you that there may still be a little bit of stigma attached to this idea of mental health. And, and it's the same. It's, it's your body, it's physical and, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a need just like any other part of your body. When right. And we, right. And we would never hesitate to go to the doctor, you know, and get medication yeah. or, or, or treatment for asthma or for a thyroid right. dysfunction or for, you know, liver disease, you know, I mean, just go down the yeah. list. Yeah. Right. I mean, I remember one woman who said, I wish I could wear a cast on my head mm. because something is broken in there and it's just really hard for people to understand. Yeah. And, you know, the more we can talk about brain health, as I call it in the book, and thank you for bringing that up because I think it's a really important point brain health brain health not mental yeah. health not mental health brain health right brain yeah. we talk so openly about heart health and you know got to keep your heart healthy well guess what you know we got to keep our our brain healthy too and yeah. I, I think especially for kids you know who may not know what's happening in yeah. their brains and you know adolescents who's, who really struggle with this uh one in five adolescents will experience uh, depression in, in severe form before adulthood. So if we can talk about and open up and just, you know, like any other issue, <laughs> I talk about my heart. I, you know, I have a healthy diet. I do such and such. Well, brain health is important too. And that includes taking care of yourself. That includes getting good sleep, getting good nutrition. That includes exercise. That includes therapy when needed. That includes medication when um, needed, right? So brain health. Let's talk about it. Yeah. I love that. I, I, this makes me think of the word you, you bring up this um, idea of traction that when you're depressed, sometimes what you really need is just to get some traction. And that for a lot of people, medication may be that may be the traction that they need to just get going and to establish some kind of regimen to stay healthier. So would you talk about that or maybe other um, ways that you can find traction when you really are in um, and when it's already started, when you're really already in that dark place. No, I appreciate it. And, and let me just say quickly uh, to compliment you both, you know, you're, you're very prepared and it's so nice when interviewers are prepared and have <laughs> done their homework. So you guys are great. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I talk about in the book about, um, you know, sometimes I'm a, <laughs> well, I'll stop. I am not a big medication person, you know, my whole life. I, you know, try to kind of, you know, I don't really need that extra, you know, um, whatever. I, I just don't like medication. I, I'm a health sort of, you know, natural, naturalist kind of person. But when I um, was in the depths of my depression, I knew, I just knew that I had to do something that included, um, 
uh, pharmaceutical drugs, medication. I had to do it. And, and a doctor talked to me and said, you know, it's like you're on ice. It's like you're, you're on ice with a pair of shoes and you just can't, <laughs> you can't get it. You can't get your foothold. You can't get traction. And what medication does is, and therapy does, it helps you to be able to sort of grab onto something and take one more step. You know, I likened it in the, in the book to, you know, I, in the worst of my depression, I sort of got to the top of a big steep flight of stairs and the stair in front of me was like so far away. I couldn't reach it. And below me was this dark, you know, awful abyss. And what medication did for me was it helped me, be able to reach that next step. It brought that next step closer to me so that I could reach out and grab on and then take another step when I was ready. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think people, and that's the other big theme of my book is stigma, you know, the stigma attached to, uh, to mental illness issues and, you know, how people are afraid to talk about it or embarrassed to talk about it and not just embarrassed for a, a mental health diagnosis not just embarrassed that they have this problem, but that they need treatment for it. And, you know, that treatment might include, you know, um, seeing a therapist, seeing a psychiatrist, seeing a psychologist and taking medication. So thank you for that question. Yeah. I have a a bit of personal experience too, that I think uh, this is remind, this reminds me of when I was, when I was on my mission, I've talked about this just a little bit on, on the podcast, but I suffered from, I would say very severe OCD. And there were two things I think that really kept me from like talking about it with anyone. The first one was that I didn't, I had sort of these, my own like religious explanations for it. And as a 19, 20 year old, I did not, OCD was not in my vocabulary, at least in that, at least in that sense um, of something that could be, you know, actually diagnosable and that could actually, you know, affect me in a way that it was affecting me. And so I, I kind of thought that what I was experiencing was either, was either the spirit or the lack of the spirit or, you know, Satan in some way that, you know, tempting me or, um, you know, putting these, these thoughts in my head or whatever it was. And so it didn't make, it didn't occur to me to, you know, talk about this as a, as a mental health issue. And the second one, like you bring up is the, is that, that stigma. Once I, and once I got home from my mission, I think this is the first time that I, that I really started to um, get a little bit of my own traction with this was, when I started to date Aubrey and opened up to her about my issues a little bit. And we just, it was, it was like a huge relief just to like, just to say the words, you know, and that, and it, we're talking about a process of years, obviously, but that was what, that was what set me on the road to eventually being able to get, you know, treated and uh, start to, you know, start to recover from that. And I love that you share that. Gosh, Tim, thank you so much. Um, and I know you've talked about it on your podcast, but it just warms my heart to hear you share that. Can I ask you a question? How did, how did your OCD impact your mission experience? Were you able to fully function? Was it harder for you to have sort of, quote unquote, a good experience on your mission? I think it was, but the number, the, the, honestly, the number one most important thing for me was to hide it. Like, right. I did right. not want anyone to know that I was feeling what I was feeling and And why not why not I you know I was I was ashamed yeah I and the thing is with with OCD too it puts such dark thoughts in your head and it can at least you know depending on it it can affect people in so many different ways but like there are things that would be really embarrassing especially you know when when there's such a constant emphasis on worthiness you know that'll that'll really get you as a as a missionary um that's trying to you know keep all the rules the best you can and Uh, It's making you feel constantly unworthy. Um, But like the idea that that the idea that if you're being righteous, you should, you should feel happy. And like, as a missionary, they even tell you like, at least back in my day, this is, we're now talking, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, but it's like, you should be walking down the street with a smile on your face because people should see the joy that the gospel brings to your life. And it was like, okay, I got to have that smile on my face. Otherwise, you know, other people's salvation is really at stake here. If they don't see that smile, you know, and, you know, serving, and that's not just with, uh, with people in the community, but also like with your fellow missionaries, like if you're serving in a leadership position or whatever it is, um, you, you feel the need to set that example. 
And so, to, yeah, to answer your question, I, I did have a, a full mission experience from an external perspective and I you know, served in a lot of leadership positions. And, um, you know, I think if somebody had, had just had a video camera on me, like they would have said, this was a great, this was a great mission. But internally it was, I, I don't think it's an, ex I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that I, I was, I was tortured. It was, yeah. it was a constant 24 hour a day, just like weighted blanket that I never, um, that I could never seem to, to get rid of. And like I said, I had these, I had spiritual explanations for what was, um, for what was really, you know, a mental, a brain health issue. And I had right. no, I had no idea that that's, that what was going on. And actually one more, one more thing on this, when you were talking about suicidality, I, I never considered myself to be suicidal, but there were during the, during the darker times, for sure, I started to imagine how much better it would be if I were gone. And right. like, it was, it wasn't like I was planning anything, but it was like, um, you know, it'd be good if I got hit by a bus today or whatever. And uh, yeah, sorry. And so I really, um, yeah, I really feel, I, re I really feel for you. And I, I hope that, I hope that, you know, we can help get the word out that this is something that other people can, that people can overcome. And it's not, you know, that, that darkest, that darkest moment doesn't, doesn't define you. Well, that was really beautiful. Um, I talked to many uh, missionaries, return missionaries who, who shared experiences like yours and you know I think I think the value in opening up like so many did to me and like you've done here and have done and have done previously I think the value in that is helping someone else who who won't have to go through you know the pain and the suffering and the stigma and the embarrassment and and perhaps you know even worse i mean i i talked to i can think of several missionaries right now return missionaries one who had a similar experience to you you know she was just so dark and so um sad and had multiple sort of mental health issues that hadn't been diagnosed before her mission and she told me she'd be walking down the street with her companion and she'd see a bus and she'd just, she'd, she'd fantasize about, you know, kind of stepping into in front of the bus and, and, um, you know, she, she was in a very bad place. And I think a lot of our missionaries are, um, and many are not, but there are, there's a percentage of our young, young missionaries who really struggle. And I think, you know, talking about it, opening up, um, and sharing is the, is the antidote to helping them. It is the antidote to creating an environment where, you know, we're not afraid and not ashamed to open up and to make changes. They're going to help our young people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved that whole chapter on missionary work and it, of all the chapters, I felt like that one just, it hurt my heart to hear all of these interviews with missionaries who had tried so hard, you know, so hard that, that they had actually reached their limit and come home before their two years or 18 months was up. And, and there was one story that I loved about um, the elder Holland. I think, I think it was before face to face. And he, he had a missionary ask him a question um, about what, what, what should he say when people ask if he's a returned missionary because he had only served for four months and then came right. home with um, anxiety and depression and, and Elder Holland gave the most beautiful answer. And my favorite part was just basically, he said, when someone asks you, if you serve a mission, you say yes. And you don't follow it up with anything. You don't say, but only for four months, you say, yes, I'm a return missionary. And I thought that was just so liberating. Like just this general permission to say you served a mission and you should be proud of the time that you were there. And there should be no shame about how many days or weeks or months you were away. And I, I think you said only 40, something like 46, I think that's 46%, yeah, of, of missionaries who returned early felt like they could really say that they were return missionaries. And, and a vast majority felt like they had had feelings of, of failure or felt uncomfortable being with people talking about missions. And I just thought, we've, yeah, how, we've got to do a better job welcoming these missionaries home and, and 
not letting them assume that we are disappointed. Exactly. Exactly right. I mean, a lot of this is how we welcome them back. It is how we, how we bring them back into the fold and how we sort of include them in our community of saints again. You know, I mean, I, I just, this, this topic is, I mean, all of it is, is I'm so passionate about, but I just, I can't say enough, you know, Elder Holland in his landmark address on mental health, it said a quote that I have um, committed to memory, and I think about it all the time, that these afflictions, mental illnesses, are some of the realities of mortal life, and there should be no more shame in acknowledging them than in acknowledging a battle with high blood pressure or the sudden appearance of a malignant tumor. I just, you know, an apostle of the Lord has told us, you know, Elder Holland and others, but, you know, depression is not the result of some sort of personal inadequacy on a mission or otherwise. It's not a black mark on your character, right? Just like any other physical condition, as we have said, you know, we have to bust the stigma of mental illness. You know, nobody thinks that, you know, you know, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you got a cancer diagnosis and go at it alone, you know? Right. I mean, that's just not yeah. what we do, you know? We embrace and we empathize and we help, you know? And we mourn with those that mourn. We mourn with those that mourn, you know? We can do this better. Yeah, yeah. And what, I, let, let's stay here for another second. I, I think there are a lot of missionaries coming home early either because their missions were ended and and so maybe that feels... A little different, but I think this is also one of the most difficult times to serve a mission because so many are are heading out into the mission field and then into quarantine, and and it's like the ultimate isolation, right? And so, yeah. what does that actually look like when a missionary in your ward or in your family comes home? I mean, what? How should that really look? Is it? Do you ask? Do you not ask? You know what? What do you do? Well, I think. Um... You know, each family, again, you know, having said we should share and open up, I mean, each family has their own level of um, comfortability, right? And so I I tell the story in my book of a mom whose son came home, and this could apply during pandemic. Um, And, you know, she said, uh, Max is coming home from his mission, and he had mental health issues that we didn't understand. And, you know, please um, knock on the door. Please come over, you know, please welcome him. Don't be shy or afraid to, you know, to say, you know, you came home early. We're glad you're back. And, you know, get, let's get yes. you a calling. Let's get your calling and let's have you speak on a zoom devotional to our ward. You know, let's figure out a way to integrate and not be afraid and ashamed. And as elder Holland said, you know, you served your time and you came back for a, for a, you know, a condition that, you know, if you broke your back on your mission, you'd come home and get treatment, you know, (laughs) there's no difference. There's no difference. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can um, talk about toxic perfectionism too. I, I will never forget the story from uh, Dr. Dodie Yells, um, who I think was a crisis worker at UVRMC in Provo. And, and she, you say she notices this uptick in walk-ins to the ER, mostly women on yep. Sundays. And I just, that was like a stab in the heart. Like these women suddenly on Sunday afternoons, they see this big influx of, of people who are experiencing acute anxiety and depression. And so she kind of um, does a, her own little qualitative study to, to figure out what is going on. And toxic perfectionism is, is one of the major risk factors that she finds. So would you talk about what that is and, and maybe how we're especially susceptible to it? Yes. So. Um... So the chapter on perfectionism in my book is uh, really important. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I confess I'm a recovering perfectionist. Um, and, you know, I can talk about that a little bit. But I think Dr. Dodie Yell's um, example is really instructive. Um, you know, she, as you say, was this crisis counselor. And these women would come in on Sunday afternoons and they would tell her that they'd heard a talk or a lesson in church or somehow felt... Uh, some guilt instilled in them or shame, you know, because, or they'd received a church calling and felt completely and totally inadequate and they couldn't measure up. And so she went out to study and understand what makes perfectionism such a recurring theme in cases of depression, especially among 
women. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, what I found in my research is that women especially are trying to put on their best image, their best face, their best appearance, which is a good thing. But they forget that in reality, we all struggle. We are all imperfect. And it's okay to reveal that too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, social media has created a real problem for us all <laughs> in yeah. trying to you know, put up the best, most perfect image of ourselves. Um, but I talk about perfectionism as, you know, sort of this idea that, um, well, I talk about, it, I give the example of the box in, in the book. Do you remember that story, the yes. box? Yes. And one of our children had a very serious um, issue with um, anxiety. And I'll tell the story briefly. We went to um, uh, a therapist um, and it was a class it was an art therapy class and um, the the idea of the assignment um, this therapist came in with a bunch of boxes and a huge pile of magazines and some scissors and tape and she said our assignment was to create an authenticity box and on the outside of the box we were supposed to tape all sorts of pictures and word descriptions that represent who we are and how we present ourselves to other people, essentially how we want others to view us. So that was the outside and that was our image. And then on the inside of the box, we're supposed to um, tape more pictures and word descriptions that describe who we really are behind closed doors when nobody is watching. And so I did this with my child, and after about an hour of cutting and taping and talking, we very clearly understood the lesson that the more alike the outside and the inside of your box, the healthier your mental state. Mm -hmm. The more alike the outside and the inside of the box, the healthier your mental state. So I have since replicated this box project with youth groups and book groups. And I even spoke um, to a group at the Harvard Business School. And I was so nervous to, to have these, you know, business, future business leaders at Harvard Business School, you know, cutting and taping and, you know, on their boxes. But I'll tell you what, they were, they were into it and they loved it because you know what? It's a very visible, visual reminder of everything that's wrong with perfectionism. And so, um, you know, uh, I could go on and on about this, but the scriptures tell us, be therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect, right? Yeah. The, the, the scriptural translation is to be complete or whole. It's not without flaw right here, right now. And I think we have to remember that over and over and have our outside match our inside, <laughs> and the yeah. more we do that, and the more we remember that perfectionism is a dangerous, dangerous cocktail, especially in conjunction with depression, um, I think the better off we'll be. I love that. Have, oh, sorry, go ahead, Tim. Oh, I was just going to ask if you, uh, if you have something specific that you think can help with perfectionism. I'm super curious because this is something that I've dealt with, obviously. We have a, we have a child, too, that is a, is a budding perfectionist. And... We, we've talked a lot about, about sharing, opening up, um, about, uh, about medication if necessary, um, therapy. Is there, is there anything you've seen with, with the subject of perfectionism in particular that, that you think can, can help get you into a different mindset? Well, in my own life, um, I will tell you that uh, for many years, uh, I was very careful not to let anyone into my house unless it was perfectly clean. <laughs> and so even if we had people over for dinner, um, I would have my husband carry piles of our stuff upstairs to the bedroom so that the family room and the kitchen would look perfectly spotless. And then when the guests left, we'd haul everything back downstairs to live again, right? So we had two little kids and I had three teenage stepkids, you know? I mean, I was in the Mary and Martha story, I was the overwhelmed Martha right? Chronically scurrying around, right? Anxious to make it all look just right. Because someone had to do it, right? But I, I had convinced myself that somehow a perfectly clean house 
was a reflection of my worth. Yeah. My worth as a person of somehow of my mothering skills or my homemaking skills or my time management skills or whatever. And so it wasn't a surprise to me, to be perfectly honest, that so many people that I interviewed, especially women, for a book about depression, repeatedly mentioned the appearance of their homes or their children or how they looked or what others thought of them. So I think in our culture, it can be very easy and tempting to put up this facade of perfection. And I think we're susceptible to it as women in the church because, you know, where else is our capacity to be perfect or not more visible to others than at church, right? Right. Um, And I remember during the depths of my own depression, sitting in Sunday meetings, um, hoping that no one would notice how dark and desperate I felt. And, you know, that's another example, you know, the I'm fine, happy face, perfectionist facade, right? And I'd go through church long enough to kind of make it through and show that happy face and then collapse into bed for the rest of the day. Mm. So um, I think the more we can be real and be honest and be open and be authentic, right? Yeah. Um, You know, that's... that's an example to others, but authenticity to me is really a, it was really a turning point, you know, it has been just to, you know, and now when people come over and the house is a disaster, okay, so what? You see us as we are, like the missionaries right before pandemic came over and, and you know, I mean, it was just a, it was just a crazy tornado whirlwind in my house. And I was like, I'm sorry, guys, you know, it's just been a rough day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, this just reminds me in, um, in OCD treatment, there's a there's this concept called exposure response prevention, and basically what it means. And I don't know if this I, I'm not a therapist by any means. This may apply elsewhere. I just know this from personal experience. But the idea is that you're exposed to some trigger that would cause a uh, you know one of your compulsions to come into play, and instead of reacting the way that you normally would to try to to try to cover yourself, you completely prevent yourself from uh, engaging in that in that response so it's the exposure and then the ex- uh, the response prevention and the story that you tell about like hauling the clothes upstairs to me the exposure is having people having people come over to your house and right. the response prevention is saying i'm not going to haul anything upstairs and right. another way like you said another way to say that is just authenticity but i love the mm-hmm. idea of like just getting in reps exposing I- exposing your imperfections and getting used to that used to that feeling and i think based on my own experience over time, that can really, that can really uh, bear fruit. Right. I will say, because I think it's important to add here that, um, that uh, perfectionism and, uh, and, and clinical depression are a bad mix and they're a toxic combination. And I quoted in the book, um, the American Psychological Association, Um, published a study on what they call toxic perfectionism. And they report that it leads to, among other things, the feeling of living an inauthentic life. It contributes to a negative self-view, a sense of despair and imposterism. And further, they report a link between perfectionism and suicide. So perfectionism and suicide, which they said is stronger, that link is stronger than, than believed and, and really under-recognized. So it's very clear on many levels um, that toxic perfectionism is detrimental to good mental health. And, and as I have come to understand, it's absolutely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yes. It seems like for a lot of people that you interviewed, community was either the medicine, like like we've been talking about, that it's a place to to be vulnerable and be validated and, and to feel supported, but it can also be the poison because it's where you feel the most judged and the most inauthentic. Okay. So as we get ready to go back to church, um, how can we make our words a safe, safe place for people who are trying to heal? You know, it's, it's a really good question. And I love this question. I've thought a lot about this actually during this period of quarantine, you know, we're in Boston and we locked down pretty early. So, you know, we were in quarantine for three months. Um, and, you know, we have not gone back to church yet in Boston. So we're still, we're still having our zoom devotionals every Sunday. 
And it's so interesting, you know, I have thought a lot about what it means to really worship during this time, what it means to really feel the spirit and not the act of going to church, but the act of worshiping. Mm. And when you, when you don't have the opportunity to go to a chapel and, you know, sort of to partake of the sacrament in the traditional way, you know, you, I, I've been thinking about it differently and, and how I really have to create the most, um, the, the deepest form of worship and connection because nobody else is going to do it for me. And I feel like I have been able to, to really kind of brush aside all those superficial, superfluous kind of, um, uh, what would you call it? Kind of Sunday traditions mm -hmm. and really buckle down and focus on what it means to worship and really develop a, a tighter connection and a closer um, relationship to my Heavenly Father. And so I hope to carry that through now as we start to come out of this period. And I know many people are going back to church, but let's think about that. You know, how can we extend this deep period of worship and you know i'm not i'm not all gussied up every sunday for our zoom devotionals i don't have makeup on i'm you know right. <laughs> what does that matter but i'm in my scriptures but i'm in come follow me with my family and i'm thinking about how i can serve in a in a unique and different way yeah that's a really powerful thing i think yeah yeah i love that that's i love that I feel like before we end, we should just talk about suicide for a second. I, I was really blown away by the statistics that you included in the suicide chapter, especially um, the Utah statistics, which is where we are and where um, I think you say a third of the members of the church in the United States live. Yep. Um, it looks, it, I think you said the between ages 15 and 24, it was the, it was the, the leading cause of, of death for, for ages 15 to 24. So could you just talk about what you do if you are having these thoughts, maybe like Tim mentioned, which is, and, and like you mentioned that maybe you're not, maybe you don't have a plan, but you're wishing you were gone or, you know, any, anyone who's really struggling with, with thoughts that dark, or if you think that a, a child or a friend is suffering from something like that, what do you do? Like, who do you call? Where do you go? What's, yeah. who do you reach for? Thank you for bringing up that statistic. And can I please accentuate it again? In Utah, suicide is the leading cause of death for young people ages 15 to 24. The leading cause of death. I mean, we really have to stop and start thinking, you know, when that is a statistic yeah. that's taking our young people. Um, so, um, so I interviewed um, Dr. Thomas DeMaria. Um, he was, he's a nationally recognized um, expert on this. He's the director of the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. And I asked him specifically about this issue of um, our kids and, um, and, and our, you know, our teenagers and just suicide more broadly speaking. And he said something that's really important. He said, we've got to talk about this. Talking about mm. suicide does not prompt people to kill themselves. Okay. So research shows that asking someone about suicidal thoughts actually reduces their suicide risk. And when they feel like they can't talk about these things, when they have to stuff it down and you know, sort of turn away from it, that's when the trouble really comes. So, um, you know, I think that's the first and, and, and most important thing. And secondarily, getting good clinical treatment, finding a doctor that's mm -hmm. really going to help you. And sometimes that means going to the emergency room. Sometimes that means, you know, uh, just having, um, you know, doing what you can in the moment. I'll never forget. And I tell the story in the book about a young girl from my ward, um, couple years ago, who was on her way, who stopped off at my house serendipitously on her way to jump off a bridge. And, um, you know, it was a January day and it was, um, 
raining outside and I heard a knock at the, my door in the morning and I opened the door and there she was standing with her hoodie over her face and and her hands in her pockets and tears rolling down her face. And we live near the interstate and something just said to her, turn and go down this street and go see Jane. And as she, as she and I sat on my couch that morning and talked about what was so hard and so painful that she would rather be dead, she began to open up and um, you know, we talked for about an hour or so, and then I took her to the emergency room and her mom came and met us. And, you know, I, I think about that story and sort of, you know, this young girl's willingness to, to be vulnerable and to give it one last shot, you know, I'm on my way to jump off mm -hmm. a bridge, but if Jane's not home, I'm going. And luckily I was home, you know, yeah. talking about these things and opening up and starting conversations and recognizing when patterns change with young people, when they, you know, kind of remove themselves from their life or their interests, or, you know, when a spouse is, you know, angry or, you know, sleeping a lot more or, you know, I mean, there are lots of indicators, um, but we have to be willing to open conversations and to start talking about it because if we don't um you know i just i fear that we'll continue to lose people yeah and i also i would love to just just bring up before we end too um you mentioned that there are high levels of depression in the lgbtq community and yes um you, you one, the quote from your book is they they do not feel embraced theologically or accepted culturally into the latter-day saint community and yes. i i would love to just i would love to talk about how we can be as accepting as as possible and help help those people as much as we as much as we can both as ward members uh leaders uh parents um, just allies generally, and you know, any any thoughts you have? On, on well, that? I agree with you 100%. And I would just add these statistics: that LGBTQ youth who are rejected by their parents are at special risk for suicide. They mm -hmm. are 8.4 times more likely than non-rejected LGBTQ youth to attempt suicide. Oh my goodness! And Beyond that, you know, they report higher levels of depression at six times the rate of non-rejected youth. So these are, these are startling numbers and um, should really get our attention. You know, I, we have to embrace, we have to love, we have to welcome, we have to understand everyone in our community. There's always space, there's always room there's always an extra seat. There's always a place. And I just, you know, I get chills when I say this. Even right now, you know, we have to change the way we think about and approach this, especially for our young people. Um, and, and please, please make an effort. Please make an effort to embrace and love and understand those members of our community who may be different from you, um, the Savior loves them and we need to love them too. Thank you. So beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jane. We really just value so much the work that you're doing and the, the, um, the hope that you're, that you're spreading. And we just, we just love you and we, we love this and can't thank you enough for, for coming on. Well, I, I thank both of you and I am grateful. You know, I do a lot of podcasts and I do a lot of interviews and uh, I, you two are, are uh, special. Not only are you prepared, but you have a very kind and uh, sweet spirit about you. And I'm, I'm grateful for your willingness to talk about this. And I'm grateful for your insights personally and your willingness to share them. So thanks for having me on and I, uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thanks again to Jane for coming on to speak with us. If you found this conversation valuable, we really want to encourage you to pick up her book, Silent Souls Weeping, at Deseret Book or on Amazon. 
And as always, to everybody who's left a positive review of our podcast or content on any platform, we really do appreciate it. We read each review and comment and are grateful for the encouragement and for helping get the word out about Faith Matters. We hope everybody's staying healthy and safe. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.